0: Go ahead and bow with me, and let's pray as we prepare to open up God's Word. Lord, we thank you for the joy it is to gather together with your people. I'm thankful for uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, for this family that you have put together. And even as we've already sung, we thank you for the incredible grace and the gift of mercy that you have given us. We thank you for the salvation that is ours in Christ Although we were dead in our sins, though we were spiritually blind slaves to our own desires and to the system of the world, you set us free. You, you came and you lived a perfect life, Lord Jesus. You died in my place, in our place. You took the punishment we deserve on the cross. We praise you. We glorify your name for that amazing work of salvation that cost you everything, freely given to us. And now we serve a risen Christ who invites us to join him In a life of meaning and purpose, you give us a mission. And Lord, we believe this morning that it really is worth it to set aside and leave behind everything in this world to follow you, to take up our cross. No matter what it may cost us, no matter what sacrifices uh, are made, no matter what pain and difficulty and adversity may come our way, Lord Jesus, we believe it is worth it. And soon we will be with you. Soon you will return. And soon every tear in this life will be wiped away and we will enter into the joy and rest of eternity with our Savior. Lord, it is in light of that good news with gratitude for your incredible grace, with a sense of awe at your glory that we now humbly come before you and we ask that you would meet us today in your word, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would reveal to us the truth that is held in these pages. Lord, you are the God of all wisdom and you've revealed that wisdom In your word and in your son, so make our hearts open and teachable today. And fit us for service, sanctify us, renew our minds with the truth. We might love you and serve you as we ought. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to open up to Luke chapter 12. As always, we're going to read our text and then we'll dive in today. And I think it's important that we actually see the text. I hope you do bring your Bible, because what I have to say is really not that important. But what God has to say is of utmost importance. And what God has to say to us is recorded for us right here on the pages of Scripture. So pull out your Bible, open up your phone, whatever it is you use, and turn to Luke chapter 12. And our text this morning is going to be verses 13 through 21. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse... 13. When you get there, I'm going to read it. We'll all read it. You follow along. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. As we read the Gospels, we discover that Jesus is an expert storyteller, isn't he? And he often uses these short and vivid stories, often called parables. He uses these stories to illustrate a key spiritual truth. He's not telling these stories to entertain or to pass the time. He's telling these stories to teach, to explain, and sometimes to convict and to expose the real issues that are actually going on in our heart. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells this parable in response to a man who's in the crowd that asks him a question. And in doing so, he offers that man and he offers us a reality check. He's offering us wisdom as those who live in a society today where we enjoy really an abundance of wealth. We have so many possessions today. This is a word of wisdom that we need. Our hearts are just as susceptible to trusting in riches, loving money, being confident in our possessions. We have the same heart issues that this man had. And so the timeless parable, or the timeless truth of this parable, is especially relevant for us today. We need to heed the warning of our Savior. Beware the wrong attitude towards wealth. Beware the wrong attitude towards wealth. And in this text, Jesus gives us two reasons why. And the first reason why we should beware of having the wrong attitude towards wealth is really found in this conversation in verses 13 through 15. Number one, craving wealth is dangerous. Craving wealth is dangerous. In verse 13, this man in the crowd says, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.'" And this is a genuine request. Uh, This man means what he says. He's not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Like we saw at the end of chapter 11, they're trying to trap Jesus They're trying to push his buttons, trying to trip him up to catch him in something so that they can have him arrested and killed. This is actually an honest honest question. And he addresses Jesus as teacher, rabbi. This is a sign of respect. He acknowledges that Jesus is someone who gives authoritative interpretations and applications of the law. And this was technically a question about the application of God's law. You see, God's people, the nation Israel, had been promised a measure of prosperity. Remember that promise to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. He tells Abraham, I will bless you. I'll make you a great nation. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This blessing took the form of, a, of the land of Israel. It was an inheritance for them. Their property rights mattered. It had covenantal significance. So, so this man's inheritance, what he's interested in, is not just having to do with, with a personal matter. It's theologically significant. In the Old Testament, these inheritance rights for each tribe and each clan and each family within that tribe, those inheritance rights mattered and they're actually addressed in a few places. Numbers 27, Deuteronomy 21. There was rulings given as to how property was to be passed down to the next generation. And usually the inheritance rights belonged to the oldest son. And if you're an oldest son, you like that law. I'm the oldest of 6. If you're not an oldest son, you probably don't like that tradition, right? But the inheritance rights belong to the oldest. However, portions would be assigned to younger siblings as well. But it was the oldest son that was usually the executor of the will. And so, as you can imagine, this provided quite the opportunity for conflict. Any of you guys ever argued with your siblings? None of you, right? Yeah, conflict. As we all know, money makes people funny. And from the time of Jacob and Esau, all the way back in Genesis, to perhaps some of your own experiences. And we can laugh at that, but it's a painful thing. For some of you, you know that. You've had to actually sort through the dividing up of an estate after parents have passed. We know conflict over an inheritance is too common. And this man appeals to Jesus to settle the disputes. He says, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We're presuming this man is the younger brother. Well, Jesus senses that this man is not actually concerned with the true meaning and application of the law. I don't think he's actually interested in God's covenant and and the appropriate way that things should be done. He doesn't seem even concerned about justice and fairness because he's not presenting his case. He's not laying out any arguments. He's just concerned about getting paid. He wants his cut. Notice he doesn't ask Jesus to consider any of the evidence. He just asks for the verdict, for a specific outcome. Tell my brother. He's trying to put words in Jesus' mouth. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus refuses in verse 14. He says to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus bluntly refuses his request. When he addresses him as man, this is a very blunt and impersonal reply. He's really holding this guy at arm's length. And he sharply points out that his mission, the mission of Christ, the reason that he came into this world was not to settle family disputes. He says, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? That's not why he came. He says, listen, mister, what do you think this is? People's court? I'm not Judge Judy. This is not what I came here to do. You're asking the wrong question of me. As Leon Morris points out, Jesus came to bring people to God, not to bring property to people. But this man is not interested in the kingdom of God. He's interested in material wealth, and Jesus refuses to be used as a means to an end. He refuses to be used as leverage so that this man can get what he wants. But Jesus does more than just say no. He actually exposes what's really going on in this man's heart, Because the real issue here is not actually the disagreement between the brothers. The real issue is not how the inheritance is being divided. This this man's request actually reveals something about his heart. It reveals the desires and the beliefs that are in in the control center of his life. His request reveals his desires and beliefs that are under the surface. And so Jesus uses this interaction with the man as a teaching moment for everyone who's gathered there. Look at the principle that Jesus gives in verse 15. He said to them, now speaking to everybody, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is weighty. There's, There's a double emphasis here. Notice Jesus says, take care and be on guard. Two different words in the Greek language to emphasize you need to be careful about this. He's warning us about a grave spiritual danger, warning us about the desire for more, covetousness as it's translated here in the ESV. Some of your Bibles might say greed. It's this strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess perhaps the things that others have, irrespective of of need. This isn't about needs being met. It's a strong craving to have more. Jesus does not rebuke this man for his disagreement with his brother. That's at the surface level. Rather, he's rebuking him for the desires that are underneath that dispute. He knows that what this man needs is not arbitration, what this man needs is repentance. What he needs is a change of heart. His desires, his beliefs need to change. His desires need to change because, first of all, covetousness, what Jesus warns us against, is a violation of the law of God. It's a violation of the law of God. His warning here is against all covetousness, and that really echoes the comprehensive language found in the 10th commandment. If you remember the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20, the final one says this in verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. It's comprehensive. Anything that belongs to your neighbor, don't covet that. Don't have this greedy, selfish desire, man, I wish I had what he has. I think I deserve what she has. Jesus says, be on guard. Watch out for all covetousness. Jesus isn't bringing up some little small matter. This is not some finer point of theology. This is a central tenet of the law of God. It made the top 10 list. Do not covet. And the reason it is so important, the reason that this commandment to not covet makes it in the top 10 is because it actually expresses false worship. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, impurity, Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul says, put to death covetousness because it's idolatry. When you covet things, when you want stuff, you are worshiping something that's not God. It's false worship. In Ephesians 5.3, Paul writes to, to that church, he says, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. This is something that, that we as Christians are not to tolerate. It's a serious and a dangerous kind of sin. In Mark chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus tells us that from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within And they defile a person. Coveting violates God's law. It defiles you. It should not be named among you. It is idolatry. It must be put to death. That's how serious this issue is. So Jesus gives this double emphasis. Take care. Be on guard against all covetousness. If you don't, you're actually putting yourself in grave danger. Grave danger. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Take note, it's not money that's the root of all evils. It is the love of money. That is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You ask the question what kind of destruction does the love of money lead to? What kind of ruin are we being warned against here? What kind of pangs is Paul speaking of? Well, we can talk about how covetousness causes problems with people, like this man and his brother. And that's a problem to be sure, whether it's a toddler in the nursery right now fighting over toys, or whether it's siblings fighting over mom and dad's house, or whether it's embittered spouses fighting over assets in divorce court. Of course, craving wealth and possessions does cause human conflict. But listen, friends, those problems pale in comparison to the problems that this causes with God. It pales in comparison to the spiritual danger that covetousness brings into our lives. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul writes, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he describes the unrighteous. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy. That word greedy is the same word translated covetousness in our text nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God that's actually what's at stake if your life is dominated by any of those sins in that list if you give yourself to them without repentance if that defines who you are and you do not turn away Paul says that's a description of the kind of person who will not inherit the kingdom of God Ephesians 5, verse 5, tells us the same thing. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's how serious this is. The one who continues in idolatry, the one whose life is devoted to the worship of money and possessions, the one who is ruled and controlled by his desire for more, gives evidence that he does not know Christ. Christ. That's the proof that he does not love Christ. That is a symptom that he is actually lost, that he's spiritually blind, that he is of the world and is slave to sin, and he needs to be rescued. He needs to be saved. He needs to believe in Christ and exchange the worship of creation for the worship of the creator. So this man needs a change of heart because covetousness Is dangerous. It violates the law of God, but there's a second way in which covetousness is so dangerous because covetousness also reveals what we actually believe. Covetousness shows what you and I think is real, what we think is true. It shows that we believe, that we actually think that life is found in having more stuff. Again, look back at verse 15 at what Jesus says. He says, One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He follows this warning of take care, be on guard. He follows it with a word of wisdom. Because Jesus knows that the reason that we want more is that we think it will bring us something that we don't have. We think it will give us something that we need. We believe that having more will make us safe, that it will make us secure, that it will make us happy. We really believe deep down inside when we're coveting other things, that if we get what we want, it will bring rest, that it will bring relief, that it will solve our problems. But Jesus says this is simply not true. He says that life, life, not not the Greek word bios, referring to physical life, but zoe, referring to real life, spiritual life, the things that really matter. He says life is not found in the abundance of your possessions. That's not what it's all about. What we are looking for, what we really need, what matters most cannot be found in things. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, Solomon writes, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's empty. It's a waste. There's a couple ways we can learn that lesson. You can believe what the Bible says. You can learn it through the school of hard knocks yourself. Some of you have tried that. You've tried living for things. You've tried living for the world. You've chased your dreams. You've been successful. You've made all the money. You've got the bank accounts, the cars, the house, and you know that that's not what makes you happy. You can also look around and see it in the world. We look at modern celebrities. We look at the business moguls. We look at the professional athletes. Some of the people who have the most are miserable. They're empty. Jesus tells us life does not consist of one's possessions. Jesus is giving this man a truth claim. He's presenting him with a challenge. You can either believe this truth or you can deny it. Ultimately, what we desire reflects what we believe deep down inside. And those whose hearts are ruled by this craving for more have actually bought into a lie, which means that covetousness, covetousness, this sin, is not only in the category of right and wrong. It's not only in the category of obedience or disobedience. It also belongs in the category of wisdom versus foolishness. It's foolish to believe a lie and live for something that's ultimately meaningless. To illustrate this truth, Jesus tells a story. The first of three parables in the Gospel of Luke about wealthy men And this man in the story, the the main character in this parable, is like the man that's requesting help from Jesus. He may not be covetous. The man in the parable doesn't appear to have covetousness as an issue, but he does believe the same lies about material wealth. That's the connective tissue between the conversation Jesus is having and the story he tells. Two men who both believe the same lie. So if we're not supposed to, if we're supposed to be careful about the wrong attitude towards wealth, because craving wealth is dangerous, there's a second reason why we need to be careful, because confidence in wealth is foolish. Taking notes, that's number two. Confidence in wealth is foolish, and that's what Jesus is showing us in this parable, in verse 16 through 21, that confidence in wealth is foolish. We find the situation. Jesus sort of sets the story for us in verse 16. He tells them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He tells this story about a man who's been greatly blessed with material prosperity. This man is rich. The land belongs to a man who is a rich man. So he's already rich. He owns a large amount of land. He's running a big farming operation. He's been very successful. So this is what many people hope for, right? I mean, nobody goes to college hoping that they can live a life of financial hardship after they graduate, right? Nobody starts a business and just dreams of living paycheck to paycheck. Everyone wants to be successful. And this man is. The man in the story is. He has what the man in the crowd wants. He has prosperity. Now, just to clarify, there's nothing wrong with actually being rich. In fact, when we look in Scripture, we find that Job and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Solomon in the Old Testament are all described as godly men, righteous men, who are also wealthy. We find in the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy uh, religious leader who actually took Jesus' body and buried him in his own tomb because he had the means and the resources to have that plot of land ready. We find that there's wealthy women who support and sort of bankroll the Apostle Paul's ministry. So being wealthy in and of itself is not right or wrong. So Jesus is not condemning this man for being rich and having land. But he continues the story. The the rich man actually gets richer. His land, verse 16, produces plentifully. He has a bumper crop. And this would have been understood by Jesus' audience as nothing short of God's blessing on this man. Prosperity was often understood as, wow, God must really be pleased with you, especially if you're a farmer. I mean, think about it. Farmers plan, farmers work hard. But in the end of the day, they're pretty dependent, aren't they, on the conditions of the soil, the right amount of sun, the the, the right amount of rain, not too much wind you know, they're dependent, that no locusts come through, that there's no, you know, fungal infection that kind of sweeps through the the crop. Ultimately, if they have a bumper crop, it's because God blessed them. God is the one who controls all of that. And by God's grace, this man's harvest is so plentiful, he actually has a problem. He doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't have room to store it. It's a great problem to have. All the people in the crowd would have been going, wow, I'd love to be in that man's shoes. You're already rich, and then the rich get richer because everything's falling in his lap. So how does the man respond to this happy problem that he has? Well, Jesus tells us about his little inner dialogue in verses 18 through 19. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong even with this man's plans. These plans are very reasonable. There's nothing wrong with expanding your business or storing crops. Again, we go to the Old Testament, we find Joseph as he's in Egypt. He was a wise steward of seven years' worth of of bumper crops. And he actually builds bigger storage, and he does all of this on a national scale, and he's commended for it. So the problem is not the plan to build bigger barns. The problem is in this man's heart and in his attitude. And again, you might be familiar with this parable, but look closely at what's present and what's missing in this man's inner dialogue. Because he's really consumed with a focus on self. Notice the repetition of the words I and my. Look in verse 18. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. His focus is completely on himself. One commentator calls this section a doxology to himself. There's no mention of God. None. There's no gratitude. There's no mention of others. There's no thought of generosity. There's no consideration for the kingdom of God. He is consumed with himself, his own plans for himself, his own pleasure. But we also get a glimpse into what this man believes. He says to himself that because of his harvest, he should be able to relax and be merry. He believes that his wealth is the key to peace and the key to joy. When he says, relax, he's saying, I have all the peace I need. I can put my feet up. When he talks about being merry, he says, this is the key to my joy. He believes that his wealth is the key to peace and joy. That's what he believes. There's many people today who believe the same lie. Maybe some of you high school kids have had that thought that if you could only get, you know, that new pair of jeans or the upgraded phone or those new earbuds or that gaming system or maybe some nicer sporting equipment, right? Because you're still wearing shoes from three years ago. Maybe then you would really be happy. Maybe some of you guys think if you could just get that next set of tools or if you could get, you know, a better fishing rod you could get that gun that's missing from your collection. Now I'm going to step on some toes there. Or here, step on some more toes. Maybe if you could get that latest theological book to add to your library. Maybe then you would feel set for life. I just need a little bit more. Then I'll be set. I'll have everything I need in my garage, in my library, whatever it may be. Some of you may have thought, if I could only upgrade the outdated furniture in our living room, if we could only get nicer countertops, if we could just get something a little bit better than that tired old car we've been driving for so long, maybe if we could move out to that little plot of land outside of town and have a little homestead, then life would feel complete and I would be happy and I would have peace. Maybe if we only had the financial independence and the flexibility that our parents have or that coworker has or our friend has then we'd be able to enjoy ourselves. Maybe if you just had a little bit more saved up, a little bit more invested, then you would feel at peace. You'd be safe in case of an economic downturn. This lie is used to sell everything from makeup to retirement plans. We believed if we had a little bit more, we could have peace. We could have joy. That's what this man believed, which is why he did the things he did. The man in this parable, just like the man in the crowd, believed that his prosperity was really what he needed, but he could not have been more wrong, because for all his planning, he left out one major factor. He forgot to account for the reality of death and his court date with God, and he's in for a rude awakening. Look at the shocking turn of events in verse 20. This man has had a bumper crop. He's making great plans. He feels pretty confident. He's anticipating a life of ease and joy and rest and relaxation and plenty. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Just when he thought he was set for life, his life comes to an end. Here's the thing, death doesn't care about your schedule. Death doesn't care about your plans. Death doesn't care about your bank account. And when death comes, everything you've collected in this life will slip through your fingers. Proverbs 23 verse 4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. What a wise insight into the true nature of wealth. The words of our Lord force us to reckon with this ironic reality that everything we work for, everything we toil for here in this life just ends up going to someone else in the end. Jesus says, those things you have prepared, whose will they be? Solomon came to grips with this, Ecclesiastes 2.18. Solomon, I think writing here at the end of his life, said, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. The man in this story, the man in this parable is a fool. A fool in the sense that he acts without sense. He's striving after vanity, something that's empty, something that is meaningless. It's dumb to think that amassing material wealth is winning at life. But there's a lot of people who believe that. The reality is you are going to die and your money is going to get spent by someone else and your stuff is going to end up at the dump. There's a man in our church who took his high school son to the dump north of town just to drive in and see it, to smell it. Just to remind him, that's where all our stuff is going to end up eventually. So don't take it too seriously. That's wisdom. This man is a fool in the sense that he acts without sense. But he's also a fool in sort of the classic biblical sense, that this man is confident in himself. He trusts his own wisdom. He's confident in his own resources and his own plans. And he completely ignores God. Psalm 53 verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. That's the epitome of foolishness, is just ignoring God, denying denying that God belongs in any of your thoughts or plans. I don't think the man in this parable was an actual atheist. I, I don't think he would have said, I don't believe in God. I don't think there is such thing as God. But he is what you might call a practical atheist. He lives as if God were not real. And it's possible even for Christians to live a life of practical atheism. You can come to church, you can sing the songs and you know, believe the right things, but in day-to-day life, it's possible to actually live as if God's, God's not real. It has no impact. This man did not fear God, he did not thank God, he does not serve God. That's the practical atheism, the foolishness of this man. There's nothing wrong with planning. It's wise to do so. But godless planning, the kind of lifestyle and mindset and planning that leaves God out, that is arrogant and foolish. James chapter 4, verse 13. James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time. And then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Nothing wrong with planning, but godless planning that does not recognize the sovereignty of God and the reality of how short our life is. That sort of planning is foolish. We all know, even though we don't like to think about it, that we're going to die and you can't take it with you. As has been often said, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses. Go to a funeral this week and see. This man's confidence was misplaced. His hopes were built on a faulty foundation. Jesus gives us the moral of the story in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The moral of the story is you can either follow in this man's footsteps and be a fool like him, or you can choose a different path, the path of wisdom, embracing a different outlook on material wealth, embracing a a different outlook on what really matters. And Jesus calls this being rich toward God. Following Christ means embracing an entire new value system, God's value system. It means buying into a different economy. It's a heavenly economy. It means investing not in the things of the world, but in the things of God, in the kingdom of God. It means we're looking for a different kind of reward than what the world is looking for. We're looking to an eternal and a lasting reward. You're probably familiar with Jesus' famous words in Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Rather than laying up for ourselves treasures on earth, our hearts need to be attached to something that is far more significant. What Jesus calls being rich toward God. So, how do we do that? How does one become rich toward God? If you want to be wise, if you don't want to fall into this trap of doing things the way the world does it, in the way they do it, for the reasons they do it, and you want to follow Christ and be wise, how do we pursue being rich towards God? Well, it starts first and foremost with embracing the person of Jesus Christ, it starts with our salvation. It starts with seeing Christ himself as our treasure. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It is in Christ, it is through faith in Christ that we receive every spiritual blessing. It's not something that we manufacture. It's not something we earn. It is something we simply receive. All of us, but before our conversion, we're spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing. We have nothing to offer God. And we can acquire nothing by our own strength. We are weak and helpless. But in salvation, we receive a great gift. It is God's grace where he bestows upon us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that's what we receive when we come to Christ. We receive Christ himself. In Ephesians 3, verse 8, Paul says, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. If you're going to avoid covetousness, if you're going to avoid getting trapped by the temptations of this world, because we're being sold something every day, it's so hard to not become materialistic, right? If you're going to avoid that, it means our focus needs to be on Christ. We need to lay hold of Christ and receive in Christ the things that really matter. As we receive Christ, we not only get him, but we come to embrace his wisdom. Proverbs 8 speaks in the sense of wisdom personified. Wisdom speaks to us saying, riches and honor are with me. Enduring wealth and righteousness, my fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield is better than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness and the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. When we come to Christ, we not only receive Him, we receive true wisdom. And true wisdom is better than anything the world has to offer. It's better to be wise and be poor in this world than be the richest fool who ever lived. The one who is rich towards God is one who may have little else, but He has Christ, He has true wisdom. If you have Christ and you have his righteousness, you have his spiritual blessings, you have his wisdom, then you have everything. Not only do we have Christ, but as we come to Christ, we also become heirs of an eternal inheritance with Christ. It's okay if we lose our inheritance in this world because we cannot lose our inheritance in the next world, the inheritance that belongs to Christ. He is the older brother who actually shares that inheritance with us. You may be poor in this world, but there is a day coming in which a great reversal is going to happen. Again, going back to Ephesians, Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul prays that we would get it, that we would understand how big a deal it is that we are granted this inheritance with Christ. I love James chapter two verse five. It says, "Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? When we embrace Christ, when we trust in Christ, when we love Christ, we become heirs of that kingdom. We are rich in faith. To be rich toward God is to know Christ, to be an heir with him? It means that there is an eternal inheritance coming, but There's also a sense in which the one who is rich towards God does have an abundance in this life. Not in the way that many preachers and and churches will claim. There are many false teachers out there today who will say that if you just live for God and you trust him, he's going to make you rich. If you just give me a little bit of money that goes to my church budget and my back pocket, then God will bless you. It's a lie. That prosperity gospel is false. But there is a sense in which a different kind of abundance is present in the lives of those who are rich towards God. And it's not an abundance of wealth. It's not an abundance of money or things. It's an abundance of good works. Listen to 1 Timothy six seventeen. As for the rich in this present age, which is probably many of us here in this room, we live in middle-class America, we have so much. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So it's not about being rich, it's about where you set your hopes. It says, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't feel guilty if God has blessed you. If he's given you money and wealth, possessions, be thankful and enjoy it. Just don't set your hopes on those things. Paul continues, they, these ones who are rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There's the same emphasis here on wealth and riches, where you put your hope and what is truly life. I think Paul had studied and thought a lot about what Jesus said. In the life of the believer, there ought to be an abundance of good works, We are to be rich in good works. And in this way, we store up treasure, a reward for ourselves in heaven, and we lay hold of that which is truly life. That's what really matters. Knowing Christ, owning a share in his eternal inheritance, being rich in faith, rich in wisdom, rich in good works, this is what it means to be rich towards God. And it is so much more valuable than material wealth because it lasts. It lasts It cannot be lost. It's not something that that moths can can destroy. It's not something that can rust. It's not something that can be stolen from you. It's not something that gets passed on to someone else after you die. You take it with you. It goes with us into eternity. So how ought we respond to all this? Well, I'm going to give you just a couple takeaways. Number one, first of all, as we read this text, we need to be careful to examine our own hearts for the sin of covetousness. And if we find it there, we need to repent. We need to confess that and say, Father, forgive me. I've loved stuff too much. I've set my hopes on riches, money, wealth, worldly things, and ask him to forgive you. And I want to challenge us a little bit here. It's really easy to read a passage like this or hear a sermon like this and think about somebody else. Be like, man, my brother-in-law needs to hear this one. Wow, that guy at work, he's totally the fool that this passage talks about. But what about you? We need to examine our own hearts. We may know Christ. We may believe these things. But the reality is we still carry this fleshly impulse around with us, don't we? To to reach for riches, to trust in the wrong things. And we live in a world that is saturated with the love of money. It's hard for us not to soak a little bit of that in. We need to examine ourselves. What kind of decisions did you make this last year with your money? What does your budget look like? Is there evidence of generosity to others? Is there evidence of a sacrificial giving to the Lord? Is there evidence of trusting God and His provision? Is there evidence that you believe peace and joy is actually found in something that money can give you, either the security of a big bank account or all the things that money can purchase for you, the experiences? The trips, the material goods. What is it that you actually believe? We need to take inventory of our hearts. Jesus says, Beware. He says, Be on guard. Watch out against all covetousness. We need to heed that command. Examine your heart, secondly, to see if there's a foolish false hope. Examine the assumptions underneath your desires. You see, what we do is always driven by what we desire, and what we desire always reflects what we believe deep down inside. So follow that. Trace that all the way down to examine your heart. What is it that you believe? If you believe life consists of material possessions, then you will covet. If you believe life consists of material possessions, you'll be self-focused, just like the man in the parable. If you believe life consists of material goods, you will be spiritually bankrupt because you'll pursue the wrong things. To put it bluntly, if you believe life consists of material possessions, you are wrong, and you are in danger, and the Bible says you are being a fool, but it's not too late to change. Perhaps today the Spirit of God is speaking to you to, to shake you by the shoulders, to wake you up to the reality of how things actually are, so that you can actually start pursuing Christ before it's too late, before you come to the day of your death, before you realize that you wasted your life. So do you believe what Jesus says? If so, will you live like it? Will you live like it? So examine your heart for the sin of covetousness. Examine your heart for foolish, false hopes. And third and finally, plan to pursue what really matters. The foolish man made plans, but they were the wrong plans, and he made them in the wrong way. We ought to plan instead to be rich towards God. We ought to think like Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian a few hundred years ago. As a young man, he wrote 70 resolutions for his life. And number 17 is this. Edwards writes, resolved, that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. If you think about that on a regular basis, that'll change the kinds of plans you make. It'll change your decisions. It'll change what you value. It'll it'll change what you do with your stuff, with wealth. We need to plan to pursue what really matters. This morning, we need to check our balances, not just your bank account, not your savings account, not your investment accounts. You need to check your spiritual account and plan to invest in what really matters. What do you see there when you check your account? Are you poor or are you rich? In, In the ways that God considers poor, and rich. Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know Christ. Perhaps as you read this parable, you realize I'm not ready for my court date with God. I have nothing to show. Step one is admitting you have nothing to show, that admitting you have nothing to give him, and admitting that you need Christ. See, the only way that you can be forgiven of your sin, the only way you can escape God's judgment is to receive Christ, It's to trust in his work on the cross, his resurrection, Jesus Christ is the only Savior. He says in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Life is not found in possessions. Life is found in Christ. So step one to be rich towards God is confess your sinner and believe in the gospel. Believe that you need to be redeemed and that God has offered salvation to you in Christ. Confess your sins and cry out to him today to change you, to save you to set you free, and to give you his riches, the riches of his grace. That's step one. And if you've already taken that step, if you've experienced the transformation of the heart that comes through faith in Christ, then let's start making plans about how we're going to invest in eternity. If you look at your own heart and find an embarrassingly empty account then today is maybe a fresh opportunity to remember what really matters and to lay hold of Christ again by faith. Not that you have to get saved again, but letting go of the things you're clinging to in this world and instead, like the song we sang earlier today, taking up your cross to follow Jesus because you believe that it is worth it. Receive his grace, receive his wisdom, cling to the riches that only he can provide and devote yourself not to amassing worldly wealth and possessions, but to serving Christ and to laying up for yourself, treasures in heaven. There's a day coming in which your soul will be required of you. All of us have a court date with God. All of us have death on the horizon. Are you ready for that day? Will that day for you be a day of of loss where you lose the only things you had? Or will it be a day of gain where you enter into glory and you get to be with Christ and you're not sad at all? About all the things you went without, all the things that slipped through your fingers as you entered into eternity. I hope that day for you will be a joyous occasion and not a bitter tragedy like it was for the man in this parable. Jesus calls us to live today with our hope in the right place, to invest in what really matters with spiritual awareness and wisdom. May we as a church take this warning to heart and learn from the words of our Savior, embracing His attitude, the right attitude towards material wealth. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this passage is so convicting because it's so easy for us to get overly excited, overly concerned, overly confident because of money, because of possessions, because of material wealth. It's very easy for us to put too much emphasis on the wrong things to overvalue things that are so temporary in nature, and to undervalue Christ, to undervalue his kingdom, to undervalue the sacrificial way of life that actually leads to an eternal reward. Lord, I pray that you would increase our wisdom. Lord, purify us. I pray that you would drive out those foolish thoughts. pray that you would expose and confront the wrong beliefs that sometimes creep into our hearts. Help us to embrace the wise warning from this text. Lord, we do thank you that at the end of the day, the key to spiritual wealth is not how much we do for you, it's how much you've already done for us through Christ. We thank you for the inexpressible, incomparable riches that are found in him. I thank you that for all who belong to Christ, Christ belongs to us, and we have all in him. Christ is ours. We are Christ's. Christ is God's. It's an amazing truth. May we meditate on these things and be encouraged as we seek to live faithful lives as your disciples in this age. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.